welcome back to Yes X or No Audio. Good afternoon, everybody. It is just after 6 p.m. on Saturday, the 3rd of February 2024, here on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia. And I've got a few things I want to mumble on about. Primarily, the idea here is to get commentary on the articles that I've been, uh, that I put out in the last week, out now. <laughs> so that uh, when I do a weekend review you know, tomorrow, I free up space to talk about all the other stuff because there's a lot of good stuff out there that I'd rather speak about rather than talk about them <coughs> that I've been doing. Although there's been a bit of good stuff in that too. At least I hope you uh, you agree with this. But before we get to that topic, I thought I'd let you know about something really cool off spot, which was a bit slow on spotting. So, um, and uh, it's going to come up, uh, I don't know, somewhere, possibly all over the place for a while. And that is that... My hero, Vijay Prashad from the Tricontinental Institute of Social Research, TISR, has come out with something that he thinks is like really important. And when I see Vijay tell me something is very important, I, I go, oh, I better read that. It goes like this. Uh, there is an, there's an article called Hyperimperialism published at uh, Tintorium News. And I'll link to that, of course. Uh, and in that, he says the following... Uh, from Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and Global Insights come two important texts on the changing global landscape. Colin, a landmark study, quote, hyper-imperialism, a dangerous and decadent new stage, end quote, and our 72nd dossier, quote, the churning of the world order, end quote. The dossier is a summary of the study, so I'll be referring to them as if they were one text. Tricontinental believes that this is the most significant theoretical statement that our institute has made in its eight-year history. Henceforth, I'm going, all right, thank you very much, article. I'm just abandoning the article, and I'm going straight to the churning of the world order. And I'd like to give you a little taste of it. The thing about BJ is that he's a historian, academic historian, you have to understand this. And not only that, he's a brilliant writer and editor. Uh, So... He's got all the sort of skills that make me want to swoon, right? He understands history very well. Whenever he writes, excuse the aeroplanes, whenever he writes, it's heavily cited and given uh, whichever events he's talking about and so forth, given their historical context. This is really important to him because he's a historian, right? So I I lump him with a bunch of other historians I love very much. So one of them is Daniel Ganser, who you might have heard me speak about in connection with uh, James Corbett, for example, who his PhD thesis was the Operation Gladiator, the State Behind Armies, and he's done commentary on 9-11 and various things. So he's one. Another one would be uh, Peter Kuznick, who collaborated with Oliver Stone for the uh, the true history of the United States of America or whatever that 10-part series was called. So, like, so that's very heavily um, historically focused. And the same with people like uh, Professor Alfred McCoy. So his PhD thesis was about the drug trade that the CIA ran in uh, Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. So these sorts of people are fantastic because they like to visit topics that aren't terribly popular. So this is not a, a pro- this is disapproved, hidden history even. These, they like to go there and expose these things. And when, I wouldn't classify... Um, uh, Prashad in that category of looking specifically at sort of hidden history or anything. No, it's just a general historian. But he's, he's interested in, in broad assessments that include understanding of, of voices that are often not heard. So he tries to balance his understanding so it's more global in its 
um, outreach. Of course, he's a uh, rabid uh, socialist, so you're going to have to sort of take that. If you can't handle that, you know, all right, fair enough, you can wander off and look at other things. But I, I tend to go, well, fair enough, whatever. Put that in your back pocket and then look at what he's saying and how he backs it up. So I wanted to read you a little bit about this. So every year, the Japanese government produced something called the Diplomatic Blue Book, which is a sort of a definition of terms and so forth. And he begins this, uh, the 72nd dossier, the churning of the, what's he called? The, the churning of the global order, with an examination of how the Japanese government attempted to define the term global south. And it's quite interesting. As, you know, he, that's his way of, and the, the rest of the authors that he's worked with, it's not just BJ, but of course, you know, he'll be a large part of this. So the question is, how the hell do they go about this, right? In a long section on the idea of the global south, Japanese officials acknowledged that the former third world seemed to have developed a new mood. Beautifully put, BJ. When the countries of the global north, led by the United States, demanded that the countries of the global south adopt the North American Treaty Organization position on the war in Ukraine, namely to isolate Russia, they refused, accusing the West of, quote, double standards, since... As Japan's foreign ministry notes, it justifies its own wars while decrying the wars of others. In light of this new mood in the global south, Japan's foreign ministry stated the need for a new attitude with, quote, an inclusive approach that overcomes differences in values and interests, end quote. As Japan's foreign minister, Yoshimasa Hayashi, wrote, in the preface to the Blue Book, quote, the world is now at a turning point in history, end quote. Footnote two. So there's a taste of the way that Vijay goes about things. And he then goes on in the next section to deliver what I consider just to be a, a gorgeous quote. <laughs> so there's a discussion that happens at the Munich Security Conference on the 18th of February, 2023. Uh, and I'm literally reading from his report as I'm doing this because that's how good he is. It's just, oh, thank you so much, Vijay. You're beautiful. And here's the next quote. As Namibia's Prime Minister, Sarah Kugongelwa Amadhila said, quote, we are promoting a peaceful resolution of in brackets, the Ukraine, in brackets, conflict, so that the entire world and all the resources of the world can be focused on improving the conditions of people around the world instead of being spent on acquiring weapons, killing people, and actually creating hostilities. End quote. When asked why, Namibia abstained from the United Nations vote on the war, the Prime Minister said, quote, Our focus is on resolving the problem, not on shifting blame. The money used to buy weapons, she said, quote, would be better utilised to promote development in Ukraine, in Africa, in Asia, in other places, in brackets, and in Europe itself, where many people are experiencing hardships, end quote, footnote four. Which is just wonderful. So this is Namibia. It's a very small country that got smacked around a lot uh, during the Cold War because its borders uh, South Africa. Uh, and there was, anyway, that's a long story, and I don't know all of the details, so I can't go into it. But that is just such a beautiful statement in responding to why it was that they were unhappy with the war in Ukraine and the campaign pressuring them to break ties with Russia. Well, we would like some peace, please. We think that all of this spending money on, on creating conflicts and 
buying bombs and like stop it. <laughs> we would like the so this is a way in which VJ is introducing a topic of this new mood. Now I, it goes on. I'm only very early on into this uh, document, but anyway, I'm <laughs> forewarning. First of all, the link will be below. Forewarning, <laughs> I'm going to be digging through this for more of these beautiful quotes. Anyway, so to move on to the uh, articles that which have been published recently. Uh, there's a few that I thought we might just jump in on briefly that I want to extend a little bit. So in the style of some of the audio things I've done recently where it's a sort of extended commentary. Now, first of all, I hope it's fairly obvious uh, where I'm going with the most recent of the publications and that is drones, the perfect false flag weapon. I've laid out the case uh, why I believe that they are a particularly dangerous tool in the hands of people who want to run false flag operations. And the key understanding there is the fitting of the uh, uh, friend or foe uh, signalling device to someone else's hardware, right? And you might have to be a bit clever in that, in, in that, you know, it might be nice to somehow have that fall off <laughs> before the thing impacts or make sure it's destroyed in the explosion. I don't know. You know, there's technical stuff behind this too. Like, but if we look at uh, the history of Israel, they've been doing this shit for years and years and decades and decades and decades. And they're technically capable. So no, they would have no trouble whatsoever in doing this. So that's why it's a real fear. I've been thinking a lot about what Ray McGovern had to say and trying to figure out how this is going to work. And the first idea was from uh, Pascal Latars, the idea of uh, attacking a ship. Hmm, because that would be very easy to do in the confusion in the Red Sea. And this was the next idea I came up with. So that's the idea of that. And then I go on to just rubbish lying ass Austin because why not? And there's a beautiful comment on that from Larry Johnson in the only just published uh, Intel roundtable, which I'll also include below because I like being complete. Uh, and that was, he characterised the fact that the US has decided to go and bomb, bomb stuff because that's what they want to do, even though they're still unable to attribute who uh, performed the attack. Right? I mean, little aside here, right now, I'm, I'm looking for anyone who's coming up with a, with a plausible explanation for what happened. And right now, I can't see any apart from the thing I put out, and that's a bit wild, right? So the question that the US DOD are struggling with is how the hell did this drone get through their defences? And the article I put out is, yeah, it's, a, it's running. It, the thing had a uh, friend or foe device attached to it, which therefore it managed to pierce their defences. That's one explanation. I'm sure there are other plausible explanations too. I just ain't seen none. So the US is running around attacking people without having actually identified who it was that was responsible for the attack. And just in a straight up, I mean, just do a comparison. Imagine this is, uh, you know, you complain that um, someone's broken into your house to the police, right? And the police come around and you say, you know, and they say, you know, was anything stolen? And say, yeah, 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 a little bit here and there. And you say, I'm fairly certain I know who this is. How do you know that? Well, you know, th this happened a couple of years ago and there were these local hoodlums and they broke into the front door and so forth and someone broke into the front door again, so therefore it's got to be them. You do this, the police is going to laugh at you. Come on, we need a little bit more than that. <laughs> and that's really what the, what the DOD are doing. Oh, it has to be. And as I said in the article, I believe that this is based upon their understanding of the military tech. They've got some imagery of the thing before it hits or whatever and they've gone, shit, that's an IRGC-produced drone. Right? So therefore, 
It has to be IRGC-backed militias. And the most powerful one, as we found out from Timur Azari, uh, is uh, Kaitipo's Bala. So we're going to just slip that into the narrative. Thanks a lot, Ms. Singh, for mentioning that so when everyone looks in that direction, and then we can just start bombing the fuckers. Uh, but the point that Larry Johnson's making is that uh, he believes that the effectiveness of this camp bombing campaign, or whatever they're going to do, is going to be completely zilch. He is characterising it in the same style as uh, when the US was running um, bombing campaigns in uh, Syria, for example, or whatever it was, and where they, you know, they'd call up the, the Russians ahead of time. Because there was a deconfliction hotline between uh, the Russians and the US for what was going on in Syria, because the US was, the CIA had already, you know, done all the army and whatever of the Wahhabist crazies, right? And then they decide they want to get involved there too and fight ISIS, which they essentially helped create. This was predicted by a, um, oh, damn it, what was the, it was um, RAND, RAND Corporation. No, it wasn't. It was some, it was an internal document from the DIA, I think. And they predicted that, um, you know, this would, was what would happen, you know, an, an Islamic caliphate would emerge. This is literally the words from an internal document from the Department of Defense. Was it, I can't remember, the RAND or, or the DIA or whatever. So, of course, that's what happened. And then, so the, then this justifies the US getting involved. It's all, and it's all created by the CIA. It's just fucking insane. Anyway, but because you've got both the US and the Russians in the same space, Syria, that is, and northern uh, Iraq, Therefore, they set up a deconfliction hotline so that they don't accidentally shoot each other and create World War III, which is a good thing, you know. So, and uh, Larry's just referring to exactly this, that when the US were doing retaliatory things for whatever it was, some militia, you know, blew something up, whatever it was, they'd call up the Russians and say, right, we're so we're going to go and bomb here, there and there and there. Have you got these corners? Yeah, that one and that one and that one. Yeah, good. I'm going to use these munitions and it's going to happen at this time. Yeah, thanks a lot. And then the Russians would call up the Syrians and go, right, just so they're going to attack this, that, and make sure you get all your planes out of the way, la, 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 right? Good, yeah, fine. And then the thing would go ahead, boom, 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 nothing, and nothing would be damaged, which is not entirely true. There would be things that are damaged, and that's what's going to happen, I expect. It, what, what is actually going to happen is as follows. <laughs> The US military is going to fly out there and, and do these attacks, which are going to have no effect whatsoever on the military capabilities of these um, paramilitaries, which they are you know, claiming are behind this thing or whatever. No. What's going to happen is the destruction of private property. Right? So they're going to expend these munitions and then put them on the, on the expense budget. Say, oh, that's what it costs us this year to make sure that we have, we have to resupply those munitions. So taxpayer funds are going to be taken. They're going to be uh, given to... Uh, U.S. weapons manufacturers to resupply the munitions used, right? So the taxpayer are going to fund the U.S. running around destroying the property of private property, which is the sacrosanct thing in the capitalist thing, right? The, destroying the private property of people in other countries. And they're never going to pay for it. How about that? So the U.S. taxpayer is funding its military organisation of destroying the private property of poor people living in Iraq, a country that has been devastated by US blowing shit up for two decades and they're still going to be paying for it. Clever, right? Anyway, that's the sort of a summary of, of that article. It's really about drones as a false flag tool, but it's also me lambasting the stupidity of um, Linus Austin. Uh, and that was a great comment by Larry Johnson, so I'll include the link to uh, the military roundtable discussion. And the other article was a little bit more... Um, up in the head, but theoretical, which was the civilization civil war. If it is that Boyle's assessment that he gave to Cook is correct, that 
Western states, which are supporting the defunding of UNRWA, converts their position from being complicit to actively involved in the genocide, then what's going to happen is that you'll have then an, a range of situations in Europe, and just include the US in that sort of NATO, let's just call it NATO slash EU, right? So you'll have certain, like the US and the UK are pretty much, at this point, they're fucked. Right? The US has been supplying munitions, and the UK has been doing surveillance over flights, giving the intelligence to the Israelis, and now they're both defunding UNRWA. So they're, they're, they're out of complicit and into, you, you've been directly involved in this, right? You ding. And then you're going to have other people who, who've been running political cover. So that would be Germany, for example. There, I don't know why Germany has taken the position they have. It's fucking insane in my view. But they've been running political cover, you know, through the through the EU with you know Lionel Vander Crazy, which is beautiful that that uh, Daly and, and Wallace have been screaming from the rafters, going EU bunch of idiots, you are morally throwing away everything we ever stood for, blah blah blah. Anyway, so so there are going to be these intermediate states like the um, the Germans uh, who who are sort of haven't been directly supplying arms and things like this theory. I don't know, maybe they have. But they, they are defunding UNRWA, so they get sort of slid into the complicity part to get right. And then you'll have others, uh, like, like Spain, who haven't been, they haven't done any of that, none of that, and they've decided instead to double their commitment to, um, to UNRWA, who completely avoid you know, being found guilty of anything to do with genocide by the um, ICJ, if they come out with a judgment which follows the analysis that Bull has provided. So then you end up with these three baskets of countries in the in the NATO slash EU basket, like fully fully guilty of being involved in the genocide, complicit or had nothing to do with it. And what's that going to do? You can see there'll, there, there'll be the tension about whether to accept or reject the, uh, you know, the, the court and whether it has jurisdiction and all the usual legal bullshit. But there's going to be pressure amongst, across these nations. Right? Everyone who's in the fully guilty or, or complicit basket is going to reject the whole thing. And, then, and those that are, that are not guilty are going to go, well, hang on a minute. We, we think international law is very important. Da, 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 da. There's going to be all this argy-pudgy that will go on. Meanwhile, while the entire Western uh, edifice is falling apart because of the changes in trade flows and all this other shit that we know that's going on. So uh, anyway, that's what that article is about. I think it's quite interesting. That it's go- there's, going to be a, there's going to be a battle over morality and legality. At, in, at the layer of international law, and essentially, and it's going to be done in the UN and NATO. So these things might all rupture because of this, because these are the core values of the European people. I know, I live there. They really believe in this shit. And no, I don't. When I say I don't, they don't, it's not that they believe in it. They, it's 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 fundamental to their understanding of of politics and human rights. These ideas of International law and human rights are fundamental because they they lived through the Second World War. And these treaties had to be built to make sure we never do this crap again. Right? And they're right now being flouted. <laughs> and that's a bit of a problem. So anyway, so that's what that's what those articles were about. And then one more thing to mention briefly is the um, now we've come up with the what the first S in SSR stands for. It stands for special, <laughs> special screencast brand. So we've had numbers one and two. Number one was just a you know a ripping apart of this stupid article published at the ABC, as a, as an you know an example of preserving one's sanity as one reads through bullshit media. 
So that was there. That served that purpose. The second one, I think, is a little bit more interesting, and that's where the drone article comes from. Because it was whilst I was just going blah 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 that the idea about the you know the perfect nature of drones as a uh, false flag weapon came upon me. But the purpose of the second one is the drilling down. The, it's, it just so happens that the, the first of the special screencast rounds was about Tower Twenty Two. It turns out to be potentially a very very important uh, event because it may well be the precursor that leads to a whole lot of other horrible shit. So therefore, it's worthwhile, in this case, looking at, um, essentially, as I was saying, epistemology. Like, what can we find out? What's knowable? So if one was a historian, for example, or one is a journalist, and one wants to find out as much as one can about events without making a lot of assumptions, then you have to get as close as possible to the source data. And so that's what Special Screencast Rant 2 was about. And, of course, the whole thing got kicked off by the fact that I was heading off to this lovely um, family event uh, the other day, and I thought, I'll just have a quick look at the Eddie Wolf before I go, idiot. <laughs> and then I see the wonderful article from Dave DeCamp about the US announcing via NBC that, oh, we're making up plans to bomb a whole lot of shit because of the Tower 22 things. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> so that was where it all came from, the uh, US threatens to start World War Three. So that's enough of this shit, and therefore I'm not going to talk about this crap no more in Week in Review, because there's much more important other stuff to talk about. So thank you very much, and uh, yeah, Week in Review tomorrow sometime. Have a good one. Until next time. Mm-hmm.